what we're going to do today is Jeff, Jeff asked me to teach. Dan gave me a new title slightly. Jeff asked me to teach on, if I remember right, humbly leading others to follow Jesus. That feel, it feels right. And the more I thought about this uh, topic, I asked Jeff, I was like, I'm not sure what to do. And he said, I don't know. What do you do for a living? I said, okay, I get it. And he said, just sort of do what you do for a living. And one of the things that I think I've learned, and you know this better than me, over time is just as important as teaching people and leading people and discipling people is to model what that looks like for them. Right? Because I've known, and you know, lots of, lots of, lots of people who we remember the things they say, but it's always sort of tainted by the way we remember what they were like. Right? Or, I mean, that can be positive. But if we're going to humbly lead others, first and foremost, we have to be able to model that thing, humility. And we have to kind of start with what it is. Now, the great news is, and we'll see this in the text we're going to look at today, which is in 1 Peter chapter 5, humility is constantly returning to the life of the gospel. Where Noel keeps talking about gospel humility. So this, let me start off. When we think about the Christian life, sort of three stages, kind of, there's more than three stages. But I'm going to say there's three stages. The first stage, when we first are saved, right, we kind of think of it this way. Like the cross is huge to us. And then there's, you know, we think a little bit about life, but everything seems great, right? So, and then we think about heaven. And then, as we kind of move on, right, the cross is still big. But then we're thinking about life in terms of stages, right? So, we might say, you know, here we're saved or justified. And then we start putting... I'm not saying this is wrong, because some people might be triggered to hear me saying this is wrong. I'm not. I'm talking about what we emphasize. And then here we start to emphasize life, and we're thinking about what we do or don't do. Somebody would call that sanctification. Now, I know that's not all there is to sanctification. I'm not being technical here. And, but it's not that we've forgotten the cross, right? We have. We talk about it all the time, but we're putting our big emphasis here. And then, you know, then there's heaven. Now, one of the things that subtly starts to happen is, not suddenly, but slowly over time, on a day-to-day basis, we still talk about it, but practically speaking, the cross kind of gets smaller in our life. We think of it as that thing back then, like when I got saved, right? I was justified, sanctified, glorified. Again, I'm not against that. You know, it might sound like I am not. And then we start to really emphasize, right? So what we do or not, service, which we should, right? Obedience, which we should emphasize. It's gonna, and then we start thinking about heaven in terms of how this like, gets us there. But when we first started out, it was like all the cross, and recognizing that there is nothing I have done that has made this happen. It is all on account of what God has done for me in Jesus. And so the cross looms large, huge, every day. Over time, now nobody speaks this way, over time we sort of start to leverage that for this so that we can get to that. And so then we sort of start thinking about what we're doing is the thing that's going to really determine where we're going to end up, right? Now, we might think of that in terms of like some sort of rewards or something. New Testament obviously talks about rewards. But one thing the New Testament doesn't do is try to motivate us. You need to obey so that you will get something. Unless the message of the New Testament sort of turns this on its head. So what I'm saying is I'm not, I'm all for sanctification. Really clear. It's on record. This is being recorded. Okay? But I just want to suggest this. Yes, we progress through the Christian life. But you know, 
Increasingly, here's what I think. You know how we progress in the Christian life? It's not by, forget it. There. We don't progress in the Christian life by getting further away from the cross or growing larger even in light of the cross. We progress in the Christian life like this. By returning more and more and more and deeper and deeper and deeper into the cross as, in fact, the only way forward. So that we don't, again, we're not leveraging the cross. We are returning to it. And I think if you go out and find anybody who's been a Christian for a long time and ask them, in the course of your Christian life, has the knowledge of your, your sin gotten bigger or smaller? Do you think of yourself as getting better and better every day? Or are you reminded more and more and more of what you, of how much you have to depend on Jesus 100% for everything? Are you clinging to your works and your obedience and your service and the need to do, we got to do more, we got to do more, we got to do more, we got to do more. Are you clinging to that? Are you using that as your measure at the end of the day for your salvation in Jesus? Or is it more and more and more what's being revealed to you is it's the cross and the cross alone? Almost always you'll find somebody who will say, no, this, is, this gets bigger. So one of the things what I'm saying is we have to make sure in our Christian life that we, if you think about a rear, that the cross isn't in our rearview mirror. It's the thing that was leveraged back then, back there on that moment, that day or that period that kind of shoehorned me in. And now I'm just being sort of more and more and more sort of... Um, Again, sort of more and more sort of leveraging that, and now I'm living this sort of inconvenient thing in the middle called life until I finally get to heaven. Now, nobody would talk about it that way, right? I, there's probably nobody in the world who's ever said, you know, in the Christian life, it's all about putting the cross in your rear view. But we live like that all the time. Now, you might wonder, what does this have to do with humility? Because if you think about it, salvation... <laughs> at its very core, is a humbling experience. You are humbled before God when you understand and come to what conclusion? That you are lost. Not a little bit lost. Not like, you know, I'm a little bit lost. I just need God to give me a little bit of a boost, right? I'm reaching up a, like a tenth of the way, one hundredth you know, 100th of the way, and God's going to reach down as soon as he sees me, make some sort of movement towards him, and he's like, aha, there's somebody I can work with. No, you understand that you were not just level, you were going down, right? You were not just in the middle, you were not in neutral, right? And then you got a boost, you were on the debtor side, and God brought you over through Christ who is your righteousness, and you, you embrace that. We embrace that. We talk about that all the time. And what I want to say is that is hardwired to what it looks like to be humble. I'm going to show you, though. I'm not just going to tell you. I'm going to show you from 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll start at the beginning, but I'm really going to just sort of focus on a couple of verses. What time is this over? What? 12.05. My watch doesn't stop at the fives. doesn't really start at the fives, the tens, the fifteens, or the twenties, really. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, right? Think of Jesus saying to the disciples, with you, it should not be like the Gentiles lording it over one another. So there is, he's really sort of talking about humility already. But willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering. In other words, not arrogantly. 
over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And I just, I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to emphasize that. I'm just saying that's the lead up to what Peter has to say about humility. Being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be submissive to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. And he quotes Proverbs, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then here it comes. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? So, he, so the lead up, right? Peter's getting into it. The lead up to this is, <coughs> excuse me, the lead up to this is, you know, he says shepherd the flock, right? Be examples, not be overbearing, but leading them showing them, and then he comes to it. But all of you, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There's a bunch of things we can say here, and a bunch of things I'm going to say here. Number one, what's it look like to humble yourself? You don't have to answer out loud. I learned a lesson from, like, I just say, don't answer out loud. (laughs) When we think of humble yourself, I think a lot of times what we think of, it's not stuff that's wrong, but it's stuff that is really kind of first and foremost maybe character traits. I think sometimes we confuse certain character traits that overlap with what humility generally looks like, and we think that is humility. So, for instance, like the quiet, reserved person. That guy's humble. Well, maybe. I mean, I've known quiet people who just really don't feel like they have the time for anybody or anybody's worth their time. They're super quiet and reserved, seem deferential. The fact is, they just don't want anything to do with you, right? They might be, but they might not be, right? Or, or the person who is slow to speak is good, right? It's very similar. But, you know, we might think, you know what I need to do? I need to speak up less. You, you probably do. If you're me, you definitely do. You know, the next time I feel like talking over somebody, I can't wait to get out of my mouth what I need to say based on the five words of this sentence this guy started, but I'm not going to let him finish. I need to restrain that and show some humility. You do. But if you manage to do that, have you now humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God? Maybe. You might have just started practicing some self-discipline. That would be really kind of common decency for all humans, right? It's not a particular Christian virtue to let somebody finish a sentence before you jump in. It's not like if you're around a whole bunch of people who aren't Christians and people are doing that, they're like, yes, it's good. We don't care to get interrupted. It's only Christians who are worried about that. So, yeah, that's something that we should do, but we shouldn't look at that and think, I am resolved to be humble by letting others finish what they have to say before I start. They should be, but then, then call that humility. Now, because the fact is, some people are naturally better at that than other people, and that's good. I'm not throwing anything out. I'm just saying we want to be careful that we don't sort of look at character traits as in and of themselves what it means to be humble. If we do, one of the things we'll start doing is we'll start thinking this way. i got to get more humble. Like, well, yeah, obviously. No kidding. Right? I'm glad you finally came to the conclusion that we should have come to a long time ago. Of course you do. But what does that mean? Does that mean just sort of resolving every day? I'm going to resolve to be more humble. Well, that's good. I'm glad. If you wake up and think that every day, that's good. But are you banking on your resolve to be more humble? as the thing that's going to make you more? And then how are you going to know if you are? Are you going to get at the end of the day and sort of measure up, like, I was more humble today than yesterday. Now, thinking that, maybe I'm not humble, right? So now you're in like this like, never-ending circle of every time I think I'm humble, I'm not humble now because it just occurred to me, right? It's like, it's like when we do something good to somebody, and then when it occurs to us, that was a good thing to do. We're like, well, I just ruined it. Ruined it for who? The person that you helped? Or just like the conscience and your like, t- like the sort of turning over and turning over thoughts that you can't sort of escape? 
Same thing with humility, right? So we get caught. When we only resolve to get more humble, we can get caught by every time it occurs to us to ask ourselves, are we? And if we dare say maybe, we're like, well, not now, because I just recognize that I'm humble, which means I'm not humble. Because again, what we're trying to do is turn it into, it's a thing that you do. Like a computer just commands you, be humble. You're like, okay, I'm going to do that. All right, here it comes. I feel it. (sighs) Calm. Done. Command two, cast your anxieties on God. There's not two commands here. The great thing about 1 Peter, and it doesn't, it's true of the, all, the, all the Bible, but the, one of the particularly great things about 1 Peter is he commands them to do a whole bunch of things and always says, before you jump off the deep end, he doesn't say that, before you jump off the deep end and just start resolving to do these things and figuring out how to do it, stop. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. I'm going to tell you exactly what it looks like. I'm not going to leave it up to you just to sort of make a list of maybe good things, of like activities. Like here's the five things you need to do to be more humble. I'm not saying that's bad, but he just doesn't leave us at that. Now, I'm not sort of one of these people who bashes translations. I think the NIV is a fine translation. I'll set up. I'll say it again. Right, I'm not against it. I don't like bashing translation. It's a fine translation. Um, certainly the people who translate the NIV, they were not up to sort of nefarious evil. Right? I think there's some kind of well-known people who were involved, like somebody like D.A. Carson, but I don't, you know, maybe he's questionable. I don't know. Um, now, this I do have an ESV, and the ESV does help. But even, even if you, no matter what your translation is, It might be easy to read this as Peter telling you to do two things. Humble yourself, got it, and cast your anxieties on God. He's telling you to do one thing and exactly takes all the guesswork out of it. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you do it. You humble yourself by casting your anxieties on God. That's how you do it. And you see, this is a pattern in 1 Peter over and over and over again. They'll tell people to do it, and they'll say, look, I'm going to make this really easy for you. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm not going to leave the burden on you to just sort of figure it out in your mind, to come up with whatever sort of, you know, image of humility that you have only. Now, of course, everything that this, everything in the everything Bible has to say about humility is not found in these two verses. Right? Let's just be clear about that, and I won't repeat that. But look at the kinds of things he says, and this is where I'm going to draw the, sort of make the connection to the sort of gospel life I was talking about earlier. Look what he says at the very beginning. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why would he say that? Now, sometimes when we think about that, if we're not trying to dot like every theological I and cross every theological T, I think there's a lot of people in the world who think about that and they hear about that as God's hand is just over you and he's just ready. You trip up one second. God's like hovering over you like a bad high school principal. And the minute you're not humble, the minute you step out of line, he's like all over you. He's just waiting because he knows you're going to mess up. And he's threatening you constantly with that mighty hand. Like, I dare you. Try it. Just try me. Now, nobody in here thinks about God that way. But ask yourself this question. Allow yourself to answer this question truthfully. Do you sometimes act that way? That God saves you by grace, apart from anything that you've ever done. And then he goes into this new mode where he is like, I'm watching. And I know you're going to mess up. And when you do, I'm going to be right there. And so you're always kind of looking over your shoulder, right? Because God's mighty hand is over you. And he's just wet, ready. Boom. He's going to pounce. There, some people looked up for the first time. He's, he's going to pounce on you. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't chastise us. I'm not saying that God doesn't rightly punish us. I'm not saying any of those things. 
I'm talking about fundamentally how do you think about God. In other words, when you start living the Christian life, do you think about the Christian life and God in, God in your life differently than you did when you came to him with your hands open saying, I am lost, save me. And you found him willing and able to save to the uttermost. So why does Peter use this phrase? Well, I'm going to suggest that Peter's just thinking about the Bible. That Peter's language is not just sort of what came to his mind, but he's being shaped and formed by the scriptures that he knows better than we do. And I'm going to assume that Peter gets his language from the Bible, from the Old Testament, which would be his scriptures, right? Though Peter, don't forget, in 2 Peter, puts Paul's letters right up on the same level as scriptures, right? He also says they're hard to understand, which is encouraging, I think, for all of us, right? Peter found it to be true, right? So, Exodus 3.20. This is God talking to Moses about what he's going to do. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with my miracles, that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. Deuteronomy 4.34. Or has the God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and war, by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 9.15. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned and have acted wickedly. So this image of the mighty hand of God is the mighty hand of God reached out in salvation for his people. It is the mighty hand of God that reached into an empire that is impossible for them to get out of and pulled them out. Now notice, though, like all things, the mighty hand of God is both a hand of judgment and salvation. But the mighty hand, you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because that is the hand that God has stretched out to save you in Jesus. Not just back then. Not just to pull you out of darkness. Not just to pull you initially from being lost to being found. But to pull you up today out of what you're in. Maybe not to change your position, but to be there with you. And you humble yourself thinking, everything I have, my salvation, my dependent, my, so my salvation, my deliverance from this trial, my deliverance from this anxiety that I can't get over, my, my, my um, deliverance from this temptation that won't go away, from this sin that I keep falling into, it's not going to be fixed by me deciding to fix it. It's not going to be fixed by me deciding, resolving, I'm not going to do that again. It's not going to be fixed by me thinking, well, this is a little thing. I can handle it. And then when the big things come, I'll turn those over to God. No, it's understanding that just like from day one, just like from day one, you are not built to handle your anxieties. You are not built to handle your own temptations, to handle your own sins, to handle your own difficulties. The great news is God is absolutely built to do that. And you know what I mean when I say built. But he has built you to depend on him for it. Not to show him like how you've sort of made leaps and bounds in growth and how like little things that you didn't used to be able to deal with, now you can deal with them, right? So God can give you some sort of attaboy. So what, what God is doing here is he's giving us this tremendous gift for us to stop sort of having anxieties about our anxieties. Like I said, so that we don't try to sort of parcel out, okay, this is little, I should be able to handle this one. Or here's a big one, or a little one. This is bad, but there's people in the world who have it much worse off than me. So I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to sort of, 
man up, carry this one myself. Because it's, quite frankly, it's embarrassing. If I can't do this little thing, when I know my brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are bearing, like, I don't even want to mention what this is, you know, it's so little, so daily, I'm just going to, I'm just keep my mouth shut and carry this one on my own. Because it doesn't, just, it just doesn't compare. It just doesn't compare to what other people are going through. You're like, you're right, you know what? What they're going through doesn't compare to what somebody else is going through. And in this text, God gives us, God gives us the opportunity to be like, I can stop this craziness of trying to figure out like what is big and what is little. And understand, big or little, they're, they're both equally going to mow me down if I try to carry it myself. Just like if you had tried to save yourself and to bring yourself to the cross, just as that would, is only built to fail, so it's only built to fail if we decide, I, you know, I'm going to carry this one, I'm going to do this one on my own. I think, I think I can do this one right. And this would count for everything, too. This would also account the anxieties that you are feeling right this minute over temptations and sins. Even the anxiety that you feel, and we've all been there, where we come to God and we're like, I, I can't mention this to him again. Like, I'm too ashamed. I have gone to God 701 times. And each time, telling him, if you'll just take this little thing out of my life. Now, I know, and even like, I know this isn't how really it works, God. But if you'll just, like, I don't believe in signs, but if you'll just give me a sign. I don't believe in signs, but if you'll just give me a sign. Just show me some evidence. Because I'm weak and I, I need some evidence. Just show me this thing. And if you do that, then then I will be able to turn from this. In other words, can we dispense with faith and just give me some sight so I can believe in what I'm seeing rather than trusting in you to be who you are and to do everything that you say you're going to do in Jesus? But then, we get, but then, see, we become aware that this is what we're doing. And then we're ashamed. We're ashamed to go to God with this thing again. Like maybe it's even something we would never mention even partially to another human being. And we come to God with it again. And we, we're, we're out of hope. And now we're anxious about our anxieties. And that is keeping us from coming to God. So you know what you can do? Is you can come to God, and before you even mention other things, saying, look, I'm too embarrassed and ashamed and full of anxiety even to bring this to you. And what's more, I'm filled with anxiousness because I don't believe I'm going to believe it. You can take your unbelief to God too. Don't wait till you sort of stoke up enough belief and stoke up enough resolve to finally go to God. And he's like, finally, you're showing me something. That's what I've been waiting for. You can, take, you can open up to God and say, you know what? I'm just going to cut to the chase. I know you can do this, but I, I don't really, honestly, I kind of don't believe you're going to right now for any number of reasons. And you know what? If you confess something like that to God, one thing you're doing is you're confessing the truth to him. And you know what that outstretched and mighty hand is not going to do at that moment? Boom! Gotcha! Now, God may use any number of things, and any number of things that's going to really hurt and you know, jerk you around and to pull, God will do anything that he needs to do to pull you out of something. And it might hurt in the moment. All discipline does in the moment. But God's not finished with that. So just like he brought Israel up, think about it. Centuries of slavery, bacon bricks, pretty hopeless. Hard to resolve yourself out of that. Get out of that, stand up against a, you know, uh, a sea, an army, the biggest army in the world. Not only that, they're mad. They're bearing down on you. And do you think, no, oh, yeah, of course God's going to make the sea open up. It always happens. No, what are you doing? Like, hey, Moses, what have you done? Impossible situation. God delivered them out of it. 
God delivers us from these situations. But see, it's, and he doesn't do it begrudgingly. So let me connect this to another text that's kind of connected. It's enough. If any of you lacks wisdom, now wisdom what? To understand, what's the wisdom? In, in, in James chapter 1, it's not just the, it's not just, God, I'm not wise enough. No, no, you're not. No kidding. Everybody knows that. It's the wisdom to know what? To be able to do what? Rejoice in trials of various kinds. It's the wisdom to be able to trust God in the midst of trials and rejoice, not to have like a party and high-five people, to understand this is divinely at work. God is divinely at work in your life in the midst of a trial, not to all of a sudden unpack all the mysteries of it, but so you can rejoice knowing that he is at work in your life. And it takes wisdom to know that. So Peter, otherwise known as James, doesn't say, doesn't say, hey, count it all joy when you uh, face trials of various kinds. Oh, another thing. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Like, okay, I'll do those two. No, it's the wisdom to do what? To live by faith. And then what does he say? Ask God who does what? Gives to all. Can anybody finish it? Without... Yeah, without, well, without, without reproof or rebuke. What does that mean? It means that, I'm going to just boil it down. God never faults you for not having something you can only get from him. Right? Like the wisdom to live by faith in the midst of suffering. To cast your anxieties and your humility on, sorry, to humble yourself by casting your anxieties. God doesn't come, God, God, you don't come to God and ask, and he's like, again, you know I filled the tank yesterday. You're on empty already? What's the problem with you? Right? You need more spiritual MPH here. There's a problem. I guess I'll have to fill you up again tomorrow. You're never going to learn. Now, Again, you might think that's ridiculous talk, but I'm just saying, and I, I don't know everything, and I don't know all the people or all the experiences, but I know this. There can sometimes be a huge detachment between the way we talk about God and the way we talk about salvation and the way we talk about sanctification, the way we talk about justification, the way we talk about all those other things, the way we talk about them, and the way we are in private with God can be very different. Even while we're discipling people about how to do it the right way. But then in private, it's like we talk about in public, we may talk about God's sovereignty all the time. And we should. But then, like, there's a little clause in that when it comes to me. Right? There's some, like, fine print. And the fine print is God's going to jump me on this one. Not you. Seriously, not, not you. You go to God and cast your anxieties on him. He's going to lift you up at the right time. Absolutely, 100% now. My situation is a little different. You know, because that's one of the things that Satan likes to do, is to trick each and every one of us into thinking that we're like super special and that what we're going through is something that has not been gone, gone through or put up with by any brother or sister at any point in time in the history of the church. It's a little bit different. It's kind of like that, but a little bit different. So some slightly different rules apply. And sometimes those slightly different rules apply is when you start lecturing yourself on all the theology you know, and you start feeling anxiety about how you know it, but it's not like making an impact in your life. And now you have a new thing. I'm not going to keep going through all kinds of different examples. All I'm trying to say is the, is the same thing. And, but you come to God in faith, right? Because look what he says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I'm going to skip by casting your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He doesn't begrudge you. He cares for you. He cares about those anxieties. And until we can sort of get our heads around this, we need to, and, and, and sort of start to believe it, we can't really disciple people in humility. But if we can sort of get our, not master it, you're not going to, hey, here's the, here's the thing. This is either good news or bad news, depending on what you're like. You're not going to master this today. And hearing this, even, even if I've said some, one thing to you today, you're like, man, that's good. I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be like enough gas to get you through tomorrow. 
and have to come back to it every day. Right? And this is part of the sort of discipleship and, 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 and training people in humility. But it's not just he cares for you. It's also a call to live by faith. What does he say? And he will lift you up. When? When that prayer is over? Like when you feel it? You're like, man, that prayer really, I can feel it. Or God answered my prayer. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is God answers prayer. Sometimes, though, we measure answered prayer by whether the answer matched our expectation. You know? Is there a prayer that God doesn't answer? It's just we might get the answer might be no. Or the answer might be not now. Or the answer might be believe. And what does he say here? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he will lift you up at the proper, at the right time, in his time. In other words, casting your anxieties on God doesn't mean, and this is hard news, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're like, man, I feel like I'll never be tempted by that again, which is a really dangerous thing to say. You're like, man, everything's just gone. It's like easy street now. Sometimes God does that. But if he doesn't do that in the moment, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden his word to us, his promise to us, is no good. Or that you just didn't humble yourself right. Right? That you just didn't, you left out a step in that humbling yourself. Right? There was one little thing that you left out. One step somewhere that you didn't do. Just retrace your steps. Come back the next time. Resolve better or whatever. And then it'll work. And this gets back to what I'm saying. See, every day is not a moving away. Every day is a return to the reality of the gospel in all things. Not just in getting saved, but in living the Christian life. Not just in justification, but in sanctification. Every single day. And it was sort of news to me, honestly, is, you know, I had, I had spoken on this text before, and I, I talk a lot about the Christian life and, and um, the reality of justification and living by faith all the time. But it, you know, I'm pretty thick. And then I was looking at this text again, getting ready for this, and thought, that's the gospel life. And it's hardwired to humbling yourself because... The gospel is all about humbling ourselves and doing what? Receiving gifts. Now, just in a few minutes that we have left, what might this look like? Well, number one, if we understand that humbling ourselves looks like the way it looks here, that's going to be, that's gonna be a, a good thing to protect us from discipling people in anger and contempt and fear at the world around them. Right? I mean, it would be easy these days, given everything, and whatever your everything is, and disciple people in fear, contempt, anger, all the time, rather than disciple them in humility, casting our anxieties. So in other words, if, if you are today, I'm not saying you are, but if you today, if you feel yourself really, really deeply wrought up about the state of the world, and I'm not saying this, yeah, there's reason to be, but if rather taking that to God and saying, you know what, I'm at my wit's end over the news. I'm at my wit's end thinking about what's going to happen to the next generation. God's not going to say, well, don't even worry about it, right? Or you're so extreme, right? But if you feel like, you know what? For the last five days, I have listened to person X, Y, and persons X, Y, and Z, and I'm just filled with fear. I'm filled with hopelessness. I'm filled with, like, despair over the system fixing itself. If you don't go to God and cast that anxiety on Him, you know what you're going to do? You're going to disciple that into other people. 
And rather than teaching them and training them and modeling for them to take those anxieties on God and cast, what you're going to do is put them in a position where they are now at a crossroads that you shouldn't have left them at. And that is, are they going to follow what maybe looks like a nice method, like where it's not filled with anger and hate and contempt, or go this way? So another, what I'm trying to say is this. We have to take those daily anxieties that we feel over the world we're living in, and we have to instruct people about it. We have to instruct people to be wise. We have to instruct people to, be, to live a Christ-honoring life in the world. Absolutely. I'm never throwing that out. But we cannot, and I'm, I'm going to speak especially to you men who are discipling younger men. You don't want to present them with a model where they look at that and be like, you know what looks better than that? Almost everything. I can make almost everything sort of work into the, into the gospel, but not that. We want to be really, really careful. Yeah, you have to train them, and you have to teach, you have to disciple them before God, as, as Paul says to Timothy. I, I adjure you, before God. Yes. But you want to disciple them in the true way of humility. Like the way Jesus guided his disciples who made more than sort of one bad decision, right? How they would make a mistake, even huge ones, and what would he do? He would teach them, right? You're the Christ. I'm going to die. No, you're not. Get behind me, Satan. Then if anyone wants to come after me, here's what it looks like, right? So, he, he takes them back to the reality of the gospel, Right? I'm going to go die. Hey, let us sit at your right and left hand. <laughs> all right, all right. Here, listen, fellas. Don't be like the Gentiles. But the greatest of you must be the servant of all. Who's going to be? What are you guys talking about? Who's going to be the greatest? Mm. Okay. This is right after he's talked to them about their, his, his death. But what does he say? He doesn't turn around and look at them and be like, I've had it. Like, they, we talk about the disciples like that, right? Right? One day, just, I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet. I'm just some guy from West Virginia. But I envision in heaven this long line of people, and Peter's at the front, and everybody has to come up, and Peter looks at him and says, who's a dummy now? And they're like, I'm sorry, Peter, I'm the dummy. He's like, you're right, brother. Enter into your rest. Next. Right? Because we make, like, this cottage industry of talking about how horrible the disciples, like, in the first time in history, right? Like we, we just capitalize on how horrible they are, somehow refusing to see ourselves in them. But what does he do to them? He says, no, 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 no. The first will be last and the last will be first because, and then what does he do? He models it for them because even the Son of Man, the Son of Man did not what? Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not just giving them information, he's modeling for them. And that's what we need to be doing. Now, you know, we always say now more than ever, so I'll say it. But now just as much as ever. It is vital for us. We who have been entrusted by God to disciple sort of the next generation of Christians, it is vital for us that we teach them in the midst of a topsy-turvy, crazy world. That no matter what happens in the world, there is no new way of following Jesus. It is always coming to God, back to God to receive all that we have. And doing that and casting our anxieties on Him, believing that He cares for us. And believing that He will raise me up. And the measure of that raising up is not my ability to measure whether that's happening at the moment. Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And model for others what that looks like. And fill them, fill them with the reality of this gospel life, this gospel humility, so that they will be able to carry on in this world, not overwhelmed by it, not destroyed by it, right? not compromised by it, but living in it with still a gospel word of grace to speak to it, you know, with courage, but without fear. 
So I hope it's been helpful. We have a few minutes. If anybody wants to, if you have any questions, you, you might not. But if anybody has any comments or anything you want to follow up with, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, you have uh, well, three minutes. But it's okay if you don't. Yes, sir. Yeah. Hmm? It does. It always comes down to that. I mean, I'm not trying to oversimplify anything. It always comes down to choosing sight over faith. Now, I'm not saying that no matter, obviously, and you're not either, that anything anybody comes comes to us with and wants to talk about, we're like, this is simple. You just believe and stop believing in sight. Next, right? But, But no, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is only ever living by faith and not by sight. Ever, only ever, no matter what we're talking about. Now, the thing is, is it takes lots of shapes and forms that we have to be able to, we have to, be able to navigate and address, you know, uh, courageously, sensitively, what any number of cases. But yeah, it does. And I'm just, you know, I'm not the world, but I can speak from evidence, sadly. It comes down to me refusing. I mean, I, I talk all the time about living by faith and not by sight. You know, you're, when Ed was talking earlier about being noisy on the inside, right? Flashed my, across my mind back there. I was sitting back there sort of nursing a cold and thinking, I'm glad I'm not hardwired with speakers. It took a second, but if I, like I said, it was my fault, right? I'm glad I'm not like speakers plugged into me. So that noise right now would blast out because if I did, they'd be like, sorry, you're not speaking next. But you know, it, but it comes down to this. Yeah, I think that's right. Anything else? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly, because it's, it's easy. To, it's, I, think, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who one time said, and this is not my answer to you, by the way, is that if I'm, not preach, if I'm never accused of antinomianism, that probably means I'm, never, I'm not preaching grace, right? But it's a real thing, right? Because it, it can turn into passivity, where it's like we don't, we're like, hey, man, whatever I do, it's bad, sure, but, you know, better to be a doorman in heaven right, then whatever. Sorry, that's just like a phrase I heard from growing up. Uh, I think what we have to do is we have to start talking about the Christian life the way the Bible does, and that is we have not just been given a power so that we can keep rules and commands, the end of which is to get us something else, right? Think about what was, like, think about, think about how the Pharisees kept the law. It's sort of law-keeping without the law-giver, right? What is, I mean, David, I always say this, it shocks people. David doesn't love law. People are like, why do you say it? You read Psalm 119. I was like, yeah, it's because I read Psalm 119. You know what he loves? He loves God's law. He doesn't just love laws, right? I hear Christians today, it's very alarming to me. I hear some conservative Christians today who have gotten really hyped about, I'm good, well, I don't know. Yeah, it's sure, they, they talk about, the Bible a lot increasingly, and it's more and more and more law and how virtuous law is and how virtuous law keeping leads to virtuous society. And people are getting like really swept up with this. I'm like, oh my gosh, you've just delivered to us a recipe for disaster. Right? So that's not what you're saying, right? But what we have to be able to do is say, no, 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 no. This sort of script has been flipped. We've been set free. We've been set free to live a life that is so free that we can put ourselves behind and live to love God and others. Like, that's true freedom. And we have to, and this is, I know it's like a simplistic answer to your question, but I think it, it, we have to come back and think, yeah, you know what? Walking in obedience is 
absolutely essential. You know why? Because it displays the freedom we have in Jesus. It displays, it displays that I'm not doing this so that, or so that God will be like, boy. I'm doing this because God has set me free. And he set me free to this degree, that I can turn my back on myself. Right? Christian freedom is understanding I am so free, I don't have to live for myself. It's not about how far can I get as a Christian. How, how many things can I do as a Christian? I'm not saying that's nothing to talk about. But real Christian freedom is understanding. I'm so free, I can sacrifice this freedom for the sake of others. And do it knowing what? That all my sins have been paid for. Now, that doesn't answer all your questions, but I think we have to see, if we start there, and don't just sort of start like sort of, don't just sort of start of, you know, saved by grace, but then sort of sanctified by works or something like that, which you know, people sometimes talk that way. They don't mean to, maybe. We just have to make sure that we're constantly rebuilding this foundation of don't forget, don't forget, this is not to earn. You're not being motivated. Hey, just do this, and then God's going to really sweeten the deal for you. Because I mean, let's be honest. If, 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 if the goal of a Christian obedience is just because God's going to sweeten the deal, is that really going to, I mean, seriously, think about it. Like, heaven's going to be better? Like, right? I mean, if I'm in the midst of sin, I'm like, hey, if I could do this and still sort of squeak out, it's better than hell. But see, the, the Bible doesn't talk about the reward of heaven or the reward of glory in terms of, like, do these so you'll get more. You know what I mean? It's just your, it, it, it sets you on this path of understanding the freedom that you have, that you don't have to earn your way. You didn't earn your way, and now you're so free you can give your time. This is, you can give your time this evening when otherwise you feel like you can't. You can give your time this evening to another person who needs you, because you're free, because you don't have to own that time. I don't know. This is sort of a rambly answer, but we have to be able. To, and it's like a knife's edge, because we love extremes. I love them, because they're so easy. Right? It's so easy to fall into a gotta work my way simple, right? And it's so easy to fall into, hey, man, just pull the oars in and float downstream. Because we, we, like, because the, either of those two, living by works and living like apart, totally apart from works, antinomian, right? Both of those are relatively easy. The hard thing is to live by faith in the present, right? With both of those things sort of constantly looking over our shoulder. I think we're out of time. If you want to ask a question, you can come up and ask me. Is that okay? Yeah. I don't want to take everybody, you know.